Amen, please sit down while I just have a drink of ice cold water. There's not a lot of it. It's nice and cool up here. There's a draft blowing from the windows behind. Not that I want to make you jealous or anything. If you've got a Bible in front of you, there's a church Bible we're reading on page 1090. This is another of these passages in 1 Corinthians that you may be sat here and think, oh no, or you may be sat here thinking, oh yes. Let's put all that on one side and let's come in submission to God's word as we look at a a passage entitled Intelligibility in Worship. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For those who speak in a tongue do not speak to other people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. For those who speak to people for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Those who speak in a tongue edify themselves. But those who prophesy edify the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Those who prophesy are greater than those who speak in tongues, unless they interpret, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word or instruction? Even in the case of a lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being played, unless there is a distinction of the notes. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, those who speak in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. But if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can the others who are now put in the same situation as an inquirer, say, Amen, to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but others are not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in, while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin, and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. 
I think we need to pray again as we open this passage together. Just those last five words. God is really a monkey. Lord, I want to pray that for us as a church, that we are known for God being among us, that we are characterized by love, and that we are equipped to serve the world in which you've placed us. So speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes children ask the most amazing questions, don't they? I got asked this week, um, one question by our, our two children, then another by some other children I was talking to. But our boys asked me this, would you rather be invisible or hover 10 meters above the ground? I wasn't sure that either were actually on offer, so I didn't quite know how to answer. But children aren't inhibited by reality. They just ask random questions, and they will ask out of their imagination. And then I got asked this question, what would you rather have, a billion pounds or the ability to travel back through time? Think about that one. What would you rather have, a billion pounds or the ability to time travel? Both. You could earn a lot more that way. Well, yes, you could. Let's not get too wrapped up in those questions, but... (laughs) Time travel, what would it be like if we could just go back to Corinth? What would it be like to be a fly on the wall of the church in Corinth in AD 50 or AD 60? What would it be like if we could be part of their meetings and see what was going on and what Paul was actually addressing here? Well, as we've kept on going through this letter, we've we've had to say that the church in Corinth is not like our church today. Church in Corinth would not have been people sat nice and neatly in rows looking at somebody prattling on at the front. It would not have been like that. It would have been very, very different. It would have met in someone's home. It would have met in private, not in a public setting. It would have been the only Christian community for miles around. It was isolated. The only kind of information they would have got about Jesus would have come from Paul, Apollos, and other other traveling preachers. There was no New Testament. This is one of the first books of the New Testament to be written, 1 Corinthians. So none of the rest of it existed. It would have been an isolated community. And if you didn't like the church in Corinth, you couldn't say, well, I don't like the Greek hymns you're singing. I'm going to go down the road where their hymns are sung in Latin. There was none of that. You either went to this assembly, this gathering of people, or you didn't go anywhere. You were either part of the church, or you didn't follow Jesus with other people. And it would have been small, small gathering. Even the biggest houses in Corinth would only fit 30 or 40 people in. So it really can't have been much bigger than that. And remember, as we've gone through this letter, that this is a divided group. Think of the things that they were divided over. Leaders, sex, food, head coverings, Problems with communion, problems with different people thinking they were the spiritual ones and other people's weren't, and vice versa, them thinking they were the spiritual ones and the other people weren't. Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I was to go into that group of people with all that baggage, I would be expecting some pretty tense relationships. I would not be thinking, here is a well-functioning, balanced group of people who are likely to have a great time together. Now, imagine for a minute, you're a fly on the wall, watching the goings-on of the church in Corinth. Or actually put yourself into the shoes of somebody arriving for their meeting. What's going on? Well, you turn up, you arrive, you're meeting in someone's hallway, this is where the church would normally meet, and straight off, people launch into speaking in an unknown language, the gift of tongues. And they're talking, and people are talking um, one after the other, sometimes they're all speaking together, 
and they're going on and on. Every now and again, somebody hops up and tries to offer a prophecy, tries to say something that they believe the Holy Spirit is saying there and then, then somebody else, and it's, it's chaos. This is really what Paul is painting here. And they think they're spiritual. They think that actually this is the right way of behaving. On and on they go. No interpretations are given of the tongues. Nobody really has a clue what each other is on about. I think it's fair to say from this passage that Paul is not impressed with that. That Paul is not impressed with the church in Corinth on this point. He says, with all this tongue speaking, verse 23, will they not say that you are out of your mind? There's no interpretation. Will they not say that? It's a far cry from some of the other pictures we get of the New Testament church. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you may want to turn very quickly to Acts chapter 2. You'll have to be quick because I haven't got a page number and I'm going to read it straight away. Where it says this, this is Luke writing. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had in need. And then it goes on at verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A real sense of appropriateness in what is going on there. A sense of everybody coming with teaching, with order, but still with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in their midst. I'm not sure why tongues is in capitals. There is no significance to that. Ignore that, please. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what Paul addresses is these two issues, tongues and prophecy. What are the roles of these two spiritual gifts in the life of the church? Now, first reading, depending on your sort of background, if you've been a Christian a while and you're from a, a particular church tradition, these may look normal, or they may look quite bizarre. They may look dangerous even. All this speaking in an unknown language and speaking words into the here and now directed by the Holy Spirit. But as I was preparing this this week, it just occurred to me that actually so much of what we do to the outside world would appear very strange. You think what we're doing this morning, we're going to celebrate communion in a few moments, we're going to take bread and wine together. I've had friends who aren't Christians say, what on earth is that all about? When we pray, we talk to God who is invisible. Is that not a little bit strange, a strange thing to do? When we come and we sing, and we sing praise to God. There aren't any other occasions, really, in today's world where people sing corporately together unless they're in a choir. What a strange thing to do. Yet, these are normalized because we do them regularly. Because we come time and time again, we look in Scripture, we see what it says about communion, and we try and follow what the Bible is saying. But prophecy in tongues, actually, if you look in the history of the church, by about the 3rd century, they'd more or less fallen off the table. People had stopped using them. They'd sort of gone as the church became formalized. They sort of went. And they didn't really reappear that much until the early days of the 20th century. And people said, hold on a minute. The Bible says this. Should we not be expecting God to speak in the here and now? Is this gift of tongues not still available to the church? And so when we come to this passage, I think we have to read it very carefully. You know, I find so often, and I'm sure many of you will have found this too, that actually what as Christians we run the risk of doing is we say, okay, we've just done this, now let's go to the Bible and see if what I've done matches up with what God says I should be doing. Rather than saying, what does the Bible say, now what should we do? 
It's got to be that way round as we look at prophecy in tongues. You know, a lot of pain in churches, a lot of church splits, a lot of divisions could have been avoided if as Christians we first of all read God's word, came in submission under it, and said, this is what you are saying to us, Lord. Now what do you want us to do? Rather than flip it round the other way. So we're going to look at this passage in two parts. We're going to look today at these two areas of tongues and prophecy and do a bit of explaining about what they're about, what their usage is to be. And then next week, we're going to look at more of the practical implications and also the next bit of the reading, which also has some very interesting phrases in it. Don't read on. You'll come across that next week. Um, And we'll unpack some more about the practical applications. So I don't often speak to people who are listening online. But if you're listening online right now, don't forget to listen to next week's as well. Otherwise, this won't make a lot of sense. I just need to reiterate as well my own view on these gifts. I see no biblical justification at all to say that any of the gifts of the Spirit have gone. They are all available. To say that, you have to do some very strange sort of biblical exposition that leaps around all over the place. The straightforward reading of Scripture is that these gifts are available until Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is complete. So let's look at the gift of tongues, first of all. Let's take that out of capitals in our minds. Now, I'm not a very good linguist. When I was at school, I did French up to GCSE level, managed to scrape a pass. I did Latin for a year, managed to fail. I did German for a year, was reasonably successful. Then doing a theology degree, I did ancient Greek for a year and Hebrew for four weeks. I won't even tell you what mark I got for Hebrew. To say it didn't reach double figures is not telling a lie. I was awful. I couldn't make head and tail of it. Thankfully, the gift of tongues is nothing about learnt human languages. It's not that you have a particular leaning towards speaking Italian. It's nothing to do with that. Nor does Paul seem to have in mind here the kind of gift of tongues that was given to the church at Pentecost, where people actually suddenly, as the Holy Spirit came on them, spoke in human languages so that other people could understand. What he does seem to have his sights on here is something known as glossolalia, which is a tongue, a language, given by the Holy Spirit, unlearned, that is given to some believers, though not all believers, it's really important we emphasize that, for the benefit of prayer. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. Tongues are not to God for us. God does not speak to us in tongues, but rather he gives us a language to pray in order that we can speak back to him words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. You know, I've been in loads of meetings where that seems to have been overlooked, and somebody's spoken in tongues, and somebody's given an interpretation that starts, I feel God is saying. Look at verse 2. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Tongues is about this way of travel, not that way. Sorry, the other way. It's from us to God, not that way. It's not God speaking to us. It's us speaking to God. Really, really important that we remember that. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies. That means basically builds themselves up, blesses themselves. There may be a link here to what Paul has in mind in Romans 8, verse 26, where he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. That sense of the Spirit inspiring our own prayers. Now, in recent years, for many people across many different church traditions, receiving this gift of tongues in their own private prayer has sort of 
been a revitalizing thing in terms of how people are able to pray. Because it means that we're not just praying with the mind, but with our spirit as well. My own experience here, I've prayed in tongues, not that often I have to say, but I have prayed in tongues and it has tended to be at those times when I've run out of things to say. When actually God has given me something else to pray when I've come to the end of my own words. You're probably not surprised to find out that that takes an awful long time for me to come to an end of my own words. But it's been in situations when actually somebody in my family has been desperately ill or when there's been a really broken situation in the life of a church and I've just sought the Lord and he has enabled me to pray in a different way. Paul is very, very happy for people to pray in tongues in their own prayer life. And he goes on in verse 18 to say, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But for Paul, this is not about looking super spiritual. The gift of tongues is a gift. It's given to some, it's not given to everyone, like all the gifts. God will give by his spirit as he sees fit. It's not for to look impressive, it's not about parading, but rather it's about a deepening sense of prayer and intimacy. Did you notice what Paul said about if tongues are used in a public setting or in a group? He said, I would rather speak 10,000 words that people can understand than five words in a tongue that nobody can understand. If you want to know how that works out, that's like two solid hours of preaching for about three seconds in tongues. A massive difference if you actually want to take him literally on that point. Because the concern is, is that if tongues are brought into the public setting without any interpretation, how on earth does it build up the church? How can it be for the common good? But it seems in Corinth that most of the church were coming, they were speaking in tongues, and there just wasn't interpretation. Nobody had a clue what was going on. Should this happen? Paul says, in no way. This is not what the church is meant to look like. That is not what the church should be. In some Roman and Greek religions of the time, um, people would gather together and they would speak in ecstatic languages and they would get themselves worked up into a frenzy and they would just go on and on and on, babbling in different languages. And I can just imagine Paul saying, you must not look like them. You must be different. Things need to be done decently in order. The gifts of the Spirit are genuine, but they are to come in a particular way. If tongues are spoken in public, they must, must, must be interpreted. Remember back in chapter 12, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, that tongues is a gift of the Spirit, and interpretation of tongues is another gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the same person may be able to do both. I think Paul is quite clear at verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Or that may be for somebody else to do. Verse 11, he says, If they do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Actually, the NIV there is a bit polite. That word foreigner is actually barbarian. That's not a polite word. If you call somebody a barbarian, it's not a term of endearment. And it's that sense that actually, if the church gets to a point where we're not understanding one another and we're not intelligible to one another, we're coming at one another like this, and we're missing the point, and we're not being built up for the common good. So Paul allows for tongues to be used. And in verse 27, he says, in any kind of setting where you're just not on your own, two, at the most three people, he permits to speak in tongues with interpretation. I'm going to leave that hanging there, and we'll come back to that next week, and we'll look a bit more at the application. 
But just to say today, you know, I believe this gift is for today. If this is something you feel God wants to give you as a gift of the Holy Spirit, do pray for it. Paul has said it's good to seek after spiritual gifts. Eagerly desire them. If you pray, if you want to come to me or one of the other leaders or go for prayer after the service, we will pray for you that God may give you that gift. But he may not choose to give it you as well. That doesn't mean you're spiritual or not spiritual. This is to do with the Holy Spirit equipping the church as he sees fit. Let's move on and look at prophecy. That should probably be in capitals. And tongues should be in small print. It's been quite warm over the past few days, hasn't it? I'll just have another drink of nice cold water. (laughs) Well, back over half term, if you can remember, it wasn't that great, the weather. And um, we went to Marbury Park one day, and it was dry, but it wasn't particularly warm. If you've been to Marbury Park, you may have seen this. Doesn't that look nice on a nice hot day? The outdoor swimming pool. And in the cold, there were some lads leaping off um, the diving boards into the freezing cold water. There were some little toddlers as well playing in the shallow end. And it would look nice on a day like this, but it wasn't particularly great on a day like that. Can you just keep a swimming pool in your mind for a moment? Hold that thought in your mind. Just imagine swimming in that nice, cold, clean water. We'll come back to that as we go on. What is prophecy? Think of a question. What do we mean by this word prophecy? Here's my go at a definition. I don't know why it's disappeared off the side of the screen. But prophecy is the revealing of the loving heart of God to his people. Prophecy is the revealing of the loving heart of God to his people. You can agree with that. You can amend it. You can disagree with me. Work out your own definition. But that's where I'm up to at the moment in trying to work out what prophecy is. It's not just about foretelling. It's not just about God speaking to us saying, actually, you need to do this, that, or the other. It can also be just simply foretelling, speaking forth the word of God. The first sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up at Pentecost, he proclaims, as the Spirit has fallen, that this is what the prophet Joel said would happen. This is that. Prophecy can often be that this is that moment in the life of the church. But it can also be things like just the contemporary word inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak into somebody's life for encouragement, for strengthening, for direction. Preaching should be prophetic. If those of us who are on the preaching ministry here in the church, if we're not bringing something from the heart of God, I think we're sorely missing the point. Preaching should be prophetic. Bible study should be prophetic. Encouraging one another. A timely word of scripture should, at its base, be prophetic. It's revealing the heart of God into a situation. Prophecy in the New Testament, though, is very different to prophecy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the prophet would bring the word of the Lord and they would say, the Lord says. Or if you prefer it in A-B, because it sounds a bit better, thus saith the Lord. And then they would make the declaration of what God has said. Israel was never told to weigh the prophecies that came from Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or any of the prophets. It was given that this is the word of God. New Testament prophecy, contemporary prophecy, is different. It's not universal in its application in the way that Isaiah is, that applies to every human being who has followed since. It applies to a time and a space. It's an encouragement. It's God speaking directly 
into a particular situation. God has revealed his full purposes for salvation in Jesus. And that is for everybody. But you know, God is not silent. He still longs to speak to us. We were singing that song, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. You know, show us your heart, Lord. God longs to reveal his heart to us. Prophecy is for today. The Holy Spirit longs to reveal God's heart to us as a church. But if you look further down in the passage, and we'll cover this more next week in verse 29, it says, prophecies must be weighed. Anything that we feel is brought from the heart of the Lord has to be weighed by the church against Scripture, against what we know God has already said. Have you ever put your foot in it by saying the wrong thing? Not a great feeling, is it? Or have you ever done the wrong action at the wrong time? Possibly. Did anyone watch the England um, versus France football match on Wednesday? Some of it. Now, Theresa May, by anybody's standards, has not had the best couple of weeks. But I actually think this image of her trying to do a Mexican wave and missing the timing is particularly unfortunate. You know, I could have coped if I'd been her with losing a general election. But I would have found that absolutely mortifying. Being out of step with what everybody else was doing. Let's get rid of that picture. (laughs) You know, prophecy is one of those areas in the life of the church that can easily get out of step if we don't weigh it. If we don't come and submit ourselves first to God's word and then say, Lord, what are you saying to us in the here and now? Now, we may use different language for prophecy. Depending on your church tradition today, um, you may talk about the Lord leading, the Lord calling. You may talk about, I feel God is saying into this situation. And you may feel, or it's just appropriate that I share this. But God is speaking. I think the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? I believe it's unwise to say, God has said. Because we don't allow one another to weigh that. But we can come and say, can I just share this with you? The Lord impressed this on my heart. Can we test this and see if this is the Lord? Or can we, can we just take this word and see if we think this means something to us as a church today? Or on an individual basis, someone might come and share with us and you might say, well, can I just take that and weigh it in prayer against Scripture? You know, we need to come with this gift of the Holy Spirit with great humility. You know, we're not fallible. As the song says, we're only human after all. We make mistakes. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And we need to come and look at this gift with great humility and great surrender to the word of God. Two examples then of um, New Testament prophecy. Um, If you want to jot these down, I haven't put them on the screen, but this is Acts chapter 11, verse 28. This is a man named Agabus. um, Both of these are from this man. And it said, one of them, named Agabus, stood up, and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. And then Acts chapter 21. It says, A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and then this is verse 11. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So let's look at those two for a minute, because I think there is something of an inkling of what God may want to say to us as church through these. The first one is very much a prophetic word given for the common good. 
It's given so that people can prepare for a famine. It's given so that there is practical help to be offered to people who are in need. The second one is a prophetic action to prepare for struggles coming. Let's go back to the swimming pool for a minute. The swimming pool has a deep end and a shallow end. If you like, imagine the the swimming pool is the whole of prophecy, the whole of the ways God will speak to us in the church. This prophecy, these two prophecies here, I would suggest are right in at the deep end. High-risk stuff. Stuff that if somebody came and brought it to our church, we would need to be very sure, we would need to test it by scripture, bathe it in prayer to say, is this what God is really saying to us? Because the consequences of getting that kind of stuff wrong are really quite severe. If the church had got that wrong in the early days, it would have been very difficult to move forward. Let's move to the middle of the swimming pool, where you can perhaps put your feet on the bottom and you can stand up in the water. I think at this point, we perhaps have the kind of stuff that is perhaps possibly preaching, the sharing of God's word from his word, taking a word that perhaps you feel God has given you to share with somebody or for the church, and allowing that to be weighed. But something for encouragement, something for strengthening, something for building up. And if today, if you're here and you think, actually, I believe God has given a word for the church, come and share it with us as leaders. We would love to be able to, to talk over that, pray over it, weigh it. If you believe that for somebody else, again, allow that same process to take place. Because God is leading us, and God will speak. And then into the shallow end of the swimming pool, you know where the toddlers are sort of messing around, but it's this sort of depth. There, I would suggest, are the places where actually we just share a word of comfort with somebody. Something that is from God's heart that actually is fairly low risk that we can share, that we can bring, and we encourage people through doing that. But you know, for us as a church, if we're not happy in the toddler end, if we're not happy just to share words of encouragement with one another, we're not going to ever make it out into the deep end and be able to understand and listen to the word of God when he perhaps says things that are really serious to us as a church and as a community. Paul's summary of of these gifts is, well, if you want spiritual gifts, seek them, but seek this one first. This one, hearing the heart of God for the here and now, is more important than speaking in tongues. This is the one that enables the church to be um, at the razor point sharp end of communities of society. This is the one that enables the church to be built up. You know, over the last few weeks, I think as Mark was saying at the beginning of the service, perhaps more than ever in recent times, I feel we need to hear what God is saying. I feel we need to know God's heart for the church. Know God's heart for our nation. Know God's heart for our individual lives. And I won't believe, and I can't believe, that God has nothing to say to us. But what I wonder is if we're just not listening, or we've not got used to listening, or we don't know how to listen. Do you remember Chris and his bee last week? I hope that bee was okay after he put it through all that trauma. But he had this bee, and his story, I know some of you probably weren't here last week, the story was that it depends what you're listening for, whether you hear a bee buzzing in a busy street. Are we listening for the voice of God speaking to us through the Holy Spirit? That may come through his word. It may come through a direct revelation into our own hearts. It may come through actions or other things. All of those are found in Scripture. But I think, actually, there's no point in looking at the practical stuff until we ask the simple question. Are we prepared to listen to God? Are we seeking after what he wants? Or have we just got our fingers in our ears and saying, 
actually, Lord, I don't believe you have anything to say. If that's us, don't be surprised when we don't hear him. Are we listening? Paul says, prioritize this for the common good, not to make us look spiritual, not to build some people up and push others down, but so that the glory of the Lord may fill the earth and the church may reveal Jesus to our communities. Do we want to be a church that does that? Don't look so enthusiastic. Do we want to be a church that can speak into our communities with the voice that God has given us? Yes. We need to seek the Lord. Seek this gift. Seek what God would do through us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, as we've looked at these two gifts that your Holy Spirit gives to the church, I want to pray that you will give us a passion for hearing your voice, an urgency for hearing the Holy Spirit so that we can be effective with the gospel in our land, in our, um, in our nation, in our village, in our communities. Lord, I pray that we won't be people who sit with our fingers in our ears, but that we will be a church with our hearts and our minds open, ready to weigh what we believe you may be guiding us to, to Scripture. And Lord, next week as well, as we continue to unpack this passage and go a bit further, I want to pray that if there are those of us amongst us who need to receive some of these gifts of the Spirit in a new and a fresh way, you'll help us to be open to that, open to what your Spirit would do in the life of the church. So Lord, help us to be a community who submits to your word. Help us not to go off on tangents. Help us not to go off on things that aren't biblical but to root ourselves firmly in the scriptures and be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.